It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Victor Ho. Victor is the co-founder and CEO of Five Stars, a software startup on mission to help businesses and communities thrive by turning every transaction into a relationship. Over 30 million people use Five Stars to get rewarded at over 13,000 local businesses with one rewards program. Prior to Five Stars, Victor worked at McKinsey & Company, where he helped build out cutting-edge loyalty and customer engagement strategies for premier Fortune 500 brands. He started his career as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs and holds three degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, where he triple majored in industrial engineering, rhetoric, and business administration. Victor and his wife, Jessica, live in San Francisco and attend Reality San Francisco Church. Victor Ho, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me, Brett. Uh, it's great to have you here. And I'm over in sunny Connecticut today, and I think you're on the opposite coast, I believe, in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're having a lovely late spring, early summer weather here. What's it like out where you are? Uh, it's usually overcast daily city, just a sleepy little <laughs> suburb outside of SF. But today's actually not bad. Nice, nice. Great. Well, great to connect with you across the continent. We to- spoke, spoke a couple of weeks ago or so and got to know each other a little bit. And I always like to kind of start a little bit with the early days. And, you know, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Um, to uh, my parents are both immigrants, um, really mm-hmm. standard sort of uh, Chinese immigrant story where my grandparents yeah. had fled from China during the Cultural Revolution as all of that was happening to to Taiwan. And then right. my parents um, grew up in Taiwan, but sort of immigrated to the U.S. Uh, for college and, you know, kind of the standard like eight siblings living in a one bedroom apartment, <laughs> you know, everyone working three jobs to try and put themselves through school and make ends meet type thing. Um, You know, so did they come over when they're in their teens or twenties? How old were they when they immigrated? uh, They they came, they came over for college. So right, right at that age. And um, And did they know each other beforehand or had they met? Well, my parents, no, no, they, they met each other later, uh, later on. Um, But, you know, but, but learning, learning English by watching like TV and cartoons and stuff type thing. (laughs) Right. And then, um, and then, yeah, I, I would say my childhood as a part of that, uh, was also pretty stereotypical, you know, uh, grew up in an environment where it really emphasizes a, a lot of hard work, you know, the, mm. a decent amount of tiger parenting for those familiar with that stereotype. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, grew up, I was thinking, thinking we were, 
we were poor and just uh, a paycheck away from from not having a meal in front of us, <laughs> you know. But Destitute, like a right, lot of right. conservativeness around spend and focus on Spending. academics, that type of thing. Yeah, brothers and sisters. I have one little sister, two years younger. Little sister. Awesome. Terrific. And uh, what did your mom and dad do? You know, they obviously came over for the university. Did they able to get into, you know, professional uh, jobs quite, you know, quite soon? Or did they struggle a bit as they began to get their, you know, foot in the ground here as immigrants? Um, they they got a number of breaks that really went their way. So my, my dad was mm. an engineer um, in aerospace, uh, got a job at Rockwell uh, working on the space shuttle. Um, mm. My mom wow, was cool. uh, more of an artist. And they actually met yeah. uh, at um, Rockwell where she was a drafter, you know, because, you know, believe it or not, it's yeah. crazy to think about these days. But back then they'd send rockets to the moon with with no computers, you know, everything, all calculations crazy. are by yeah. hand and you're, you're, you need yeah. artists to help you draw renderings and sketches and mock-ups of things. Wow. And so that's what my mom would do. Um, and that's where they met. And then my dad stayed in aerospace uh, um, uh, and then, uh, went on to work at, you know, Boeing and so forth. And my yeah. mom, um, became a elementary school teacher. Um, she stayed wow, home cool. for a little, for a period with us when we were kids and then, and then went to become a teacher full time. You talked a little bit about your, you know, stereotypical upbringing. And I, I lived in Asia for 10 years, lived in Singapore, but traveled in Taiwan elsewhere and, you know, saw it firsthand as there as well. What, what were some of the things that you remember that, you know, the, the, the messages or the learnings that dad and mom instilled upon you when you were growing up? Um, I think, I mean, there, there's quite a few things, uh, the, the ones that stand out one, um, definitely a, the importance of, of faith and, um, the role yeah. of Christ in, in my life, in mm -hmm. our life. I, I have some, um, very potent memories of, you know, being, mm -hmm. being extremely cash conscious, worrying that we couldn't afford certain things, but, um, yet when it came time to, you know, when the, when the offering plate cut gets passed around, um, they're, they're really pushing themselves to a point of discomfort to kind of give. And, and that, that mm. was very visceral. Yeah. Um, yeah. honesty was another really big thing. Were your parents believers before they came to the U S or did they find Christ while they were here in the U S? Um, they, uh, it's really my mom much more so yeah. my, um, right. than my dad, um, where there's still a little bit of a question mark there. Uh, but at least, um, on my mom's side of the family, there, there's a whole epic story of mm. they're taking the last boat out from China. You know, my, wow. my grandpa gets, gets just this feeling that they gotta get out. He literally had no money on him and sold a ring off his finger to buy oh the tickets, goodness. pulled the family wow. out. They shut the Harbor down just after the boat left. And then on that boat, there was a, um, a, a believer sitting next to them who kind of ministered to them. And then when mm. they were in Taiwan, um, one of their neighbors across the hall started taking them to church and, and sort of my, my whole family kind of got saved through that process. Fantastic. That's great. I didn't mean to interrupt, but you mentioned honesty was, was another lesson that uh, mom and dad shared with you growing up. Yeah, there, there, was, there was definitely, you know, I, I, I remember a, a number of very sort of um formative moments where you know yeah. on the tiger parenting side there is a standard like you get like a 95 percent on a test and they'll say what happened to the other five percent <laughs> right and then um and Brutal. then on the other side you know a lot of this is self-reported in that in that i'm coming home from school and they're asking me 
what grade did you get? And, and if I got a mm. bad grade, I'm, I'm getting punished. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and, and so on the one hand, I'm, I, I'm very, it's very apparent to me that I could say whatever I want to say, you know, because if I just say I got a good grade, <laughs> then there's no issue. But then on the other, right, they impressed right. such a strong sense of like, no matter what you have to say, you have to tell the truth, no matter what that, right. there, you know, there was right. uh, many of these moments where I, I'm just telling them that something bad happened or I got a bad result. And, and that was sort of like viewed as paramount in the family. And did you have your own moment in coming to Christ or was it just kind of evolving given that you were brought up in a Christian home? Um, I, I, I definitely have a, uh, a testimony in terms of like my coming to Christ moment. It can get, it can get quite long. So I'm trying to think about maybe the, the high level short version. Um, sure. And uh, basically it's, it's kind of as, as follows. The broad strokes are, Although I grew up in Sunday school, I was a very rebellious kid. And starting by, let's say, fifth or sixth grade, when it was became much harder for my parents to control me, I, uh, I stopped going entirely. <laughs> and then wow. um, later on, around, I stopped going until later on in, uh, in senior year of high school. And I, I, I went with a few friends. Um, simply because they were saying, Hey, we're going to church, you know, you want to come. And I just thought, well, sure. I'm Christian, mm. I guess, you know, I always identified even though I didn't really <laughs> go. And, um, right. and I found that, um, soon after I would continue going even when they weren't there on my own. And I was kind of developing yeah, cool. this relationship and, um, relationship. There, yeah. there's sort of a, a long story short of, um, me really realizing that I was very proud. And in order for me to develop a true relationship with, with Christ, I would need to be humbled. And after six months of every day praying for the courage to pray to be humbled, I, I don't know why I was so certain that it would happen if I asked and, and I was petrified to pray it. But but one day I, I kind of yeah. just said, all right, fuck it. God humbled me. That, that was literally my prayer in the parking lot of my high school. And, um, and uh, promptly my entire life fell apart. You know, I got rejected from every school I applied to. I crashed my car. I had found out this group of friends I thought I was close with that wasn't. And, um, and then through this kind of breaking over a year, uh, just felt God come up around alongside me. So, so yeah. real, so visceral, you know, wow. just like sort wow. of a warm, palpable blanket <laughs> even. And, um, and, and then miraculously after this period, everything just kind of came back together and my life came back together. And, um, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And, um, and I had even forgotten I'd made that prayer until after it all yeah. came back together and, and that's kind of, and there's a lot more to it, but that's the high level. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we know you were a good student in school. That, that goes without saying what, what were the, what were the, you know, courses that you found the most challenging were the ones that you weren't interested in, or, you know, were there things that you just said, you know, I can't do this. This is, this is just too tough for me growing up. Um, yeah, I, w I always enjoyed variety. You know, I, I, I really liked, mm -hmm. uh, knowing a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and so I think, um, uh, you know, in, in college, for instance, I, I ended up, um, having triple majoring in business rhetoric and engineering, um, just because, you know, I, I, I <laughs> just a few more. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I would say that was a really bad decision when I, when I look back on my education, I, I think my, my biggest regrets are more related to, um, just trying to do too much and being too focused on a resume or sort of 
just checking boxes of accomplishment building versus work. really focusing yeah, on yeah. a few of the subjects that I was passionate about. And, you know, we could just enjoy, you know, versus right. everything just being work. What did you do for fun? Were there sports that you engaged with? Did you do theater, music? Um, basketball was the biggest, you know, sort of, I was one of yeah. those kids where from first light to lights out, I'm running around outside playing sports all day, exploring right. on my yeah. bike, that yeah. type of thing. What about entrepreneurial things that uh, you will talk a little bit about five stars in a minute. I know you've been there almost 11 years and had great success, but you know, was there some entrepreneurial tendencies back in the early days, middle school, elementary school, high school? Yeah, I think from a pretty early age, I, I knew that at some point in time I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, were you doing things that, that were demonstrative, demonstrative of that? Uh, de I mean, de definitely my, my personality and behavior was, was always about yeah. breaking the rules and reinventing things and thinking outside the box right. and, you know, lots of like little projects here and there. Um, right. but you know, sort of just, I don't remember when, but just sort of always, always had that impression of, of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And were there uh, jobs that you took, uh, growing up, what types of, you know, work did you do, or did you have to work while you were in high school and then into college? Uh, I figured out the best way for me to make money was to market some of the strong test scores that I had and, uh, and, and be uh -huh. like, and be a, a teacher at an SAT Academy like, or like a tutor, a tutor yeah, right. and stuff like cool. that. And so I, I yeah. did a good amount of that. And then in college, mm -hmm. I, I worked at like a computer repair station on campus, you know, just nice. helping fix broken parts and things like that. So you went to Berkeley, um, obviously, uh, growing up in Southern California, that may not have been the obvious choice. What were your kind of decision-making around that being the school you uh, chose to go to? Well, I mean, per my earlier comment uh, in terms of my testimony, like, I mean, it, it was yeah. the only one I got into. <laughs> there, there, there. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best choice. <laughs> yeah, it was clearly God-leading, but there, you know, the, the, there, there, yeah. the, there's a much longer version of the story. But in basically, you know, due to my prayer, in spite of, perfect test scores across the board and all sorts of stuff. I got rejected from every single school I applied to, including my safety schools. Right. I, I basically thought my, my future was over. And, um, and in that sort of humbling, I, I, I went to uh, a community college for a semester and, and mm -hmm. then I discovered, um, that California sort of reinstated some budget cuts they had made to the education budget. And as a result, Berkeley right. could, let in uh, more students than they originally accepted. And I, I literally got an email saying, Hey, you've been accepted. Do you want to come? Like not even a, not even a letter, you know? And uh, I accepted by clicking this, filling in this little online form, uh, checking the radio button for Berkeley and clicking accept. And then I, I went to Cal uh, the next semester. Was Cal one of your original choices? Was that in your original well, I mean, it was certainly one of the ones I applied to, you know, that's yeah, why right. I was sort yeah. of, I guess, on this secondary on that list, list that I didn't yeah. know about. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And how'd you go about deciding which, what to study? You, as you mentioned, you had three different uh, pursuits there, but I believe you got your, your BBA, right? In the end, was it a Bachelor of, of Business Administration? Well, I, I had, so I have a Bachelor's in, in Business Administration, in Rhetoric, and, and also a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. In, in engineering as well. Got it. Yeah, right. So. And uh, I started with business and rhetoric business because I was interested in business rhetoric because I was thinking about being a lawyer. And that's one of the, the most popular majors for that at Cal and uh, liked, you know, writing and philosophy and stuff like that. 
and then engineering. This sounds really bad, but I, I picked that up at the end of my sophomore year, sophomore year because I, I just I felt like I wasn't getting enough math <laughs> in business and, and rhetoric. And I really like math. And and so I, I figured if I picked up engineering, I'd get a lot more. So, Victor, what, what was that first job that you took coming out of Berkeley? Well, at that point in time, coming out of Berkeley, um, my, my goal was basically to make my resume look as good as possible so I can make as much be as success as successful as possible, <laughs> you know, right. f- fulfill the, the tiger parent dream. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so at that point in time, um, my goal was to, to go work for a private equity firm. And, right. and I thought, okay, if I want to get a, the top PE hedge fund jobs, the best resume I could have would be to have both investment banking and consulting on my resume. So I, I interned uh, that summer at um, Goldman Sachs uh, in, in IBD. And then after, after school, um, I started working at McKinsey um, in, in consulting at their New York office. And, and was McKinsey kind of top of your list when it came to the, the consulting side of the business? I mean, obviously, clearly the best, but uh, was that part of your decision making? Yeah, that, that was my, my dream. And I, I think they hadn't hired anyone full time from Berkeley before. They're, they're sort of wow. annoyingly elitist in that way. And so it was right. definitely one of these challenges where for myself and a, another friend of mine at, at Cal, um, we, were, we were working very hard to, to be obnoxious and not, well, not really obnoxious, but just get on the radar and try and get a job there. Sure. Sure. Great. Did you have uh, leadership responsibilities there or were you an individual contributor in your time at uh, McKinsey? A little bit of both. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, more leadership over time, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the first time you started managing people and what, what kind of can, you know, conditions and environment that was in. I'm trying to think if there's anything interesting to say about that. I mean, (laughs) I would say over over, challenges that you might've had doing it. (laughs) I mean, the, the thing they always say at McKinsey is, is that first-time managers either often either end up micromanaging their people and driving them crazy or right. going on the yeah. complete opposite side of the spectrum, get, giving them way too much rope and allowing them to hang themselves. And my, my right. personality is definitely the latter. You know, I, I give people a yeah. lot of freedom, maybe too much freedom. But overall, I would say the people at McKinsey, I mean, they, they're just so competent and self-directed that it, it's frankly kind of easy, you know, it's, it's, right. it's very different, I would say, than like managing in a corporate uh, environment. Any major challenges during those, uh, those few years you were there in terms of, uh, you know, leadership, and leadership development? Not really. I think many more at a startup and, and running five stars, but yeah. at McKinsey, I would say it's there, there's so much, the support systems and everything are, are so structured and so well built out that it's, it's really pretty easy. Well, you're there just a couple of years uh, before you founded Five Stars. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, tell us what kind of the motivation was around um, uh, starting up the business, but maybe just start and tell us a little bit of what Five Stars does. And, you know, those of us, those of the audience that don't know about the company, uh, you know, give us your overall mission and, and you know, core values. So the, the mission of the company is um, the one you mentioned at the beginning, which is to help businesses and communities thrive by turning every transaction into a relationship. The, the yeah. overall idea is that when we look at most small businesses, the reason they struggle today is out of inability to build relationships with their customers. So back mm-hmm. in the day, 
you go to your, your favorite small business and they, they recognize you, right? You walk in, you've been in the same place for 20 mm-hmm. years. They know, they know not just you and what you like to order, but they know your family and like what's happening with your sister. Um, right. Aside from that, small businesses are never going to be able to compete with, you know, McDonald's online speed or Walmart on everyday low prices or Amazon on selection. Like the way a small business survives is really through the strengths of its relationships and the ability to personalize. But today, more and more, they're just being disintermediated. So when you think about, let's say, ordering delivery over DoorDash, uh, what's really happening is now DoorDash is taking that customer away from the small business and, uh, and, and now mm. they become a DoorDash customer and DoorDash charges the small business owner 30% of every transaction. So these small businesses are losing their customers and then getting taxed to access them. And the same thing is happening all over, right? Like Amazon is, you know, another 17% or what is a credit card other than now a bank takes away 3% of revenue off the top from every small business because, you know, you are, you are paying with that card. Um, And, uh, and so you, you think about a small business where most of them operate off you know, 7% margins, just like tiny razor thin amounts. And every single one of these new things that gets layered on top and disintermediates them from, from a customer, those taxes quickly add up. And the result is that small businesses today are going out of business at a, at a much higher rate than ever before. What Five Stars does is we help a small business actually be able to gain access to their own customers. You know, mm. so if they want to be able to message one of their customers, they can do so directly. If they want to send an offer to their own cu- to mm. cut their customers, they can do that. You know, they don't have to go through uh, a Groupon or a Yelp or, or you know, reach their customers through some network that will tax them along the way. Five Stars um, helps them build that database, and then we have a, a suite of different products that helps them sort of engage and reward their their customers. That's cool. It's cool. So did the, um, uh, the motivation and the insights come out of some of the work that you did at McKinsey or was this, uh, you know, a, a colleague of yours or a former, you know, uh, uh, student at school that you kind of guys kind of came up with the idea from your own experience. Tell us a little bit about the impetus for uh, five stars. Yeah. A big piece of it was the former, uh, at McKinsey, I was doing yeah. a lot of this work for fortune 50 brands. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and you think about the largest brands, it, it's so sophisticated, right? Imagine shopping on Amazon. They they know every single thing about you, thing about you. Yep. You know, every pixel on the, your Amazon page is pers- personalized offers and recommendations. You have your credit cards on file. You can buy things with one click. And and yet, you know, you walk into your typical small business and there, there's a human in front of you. And yet, you know, you can go somewhere a hundred times, but they have no idea who you are. There's, there's no That's record right. of what you've ordered. There's no recommendations. You're handing your credit card over and starting every transaction from scratch. And um, right. as ridiculous as that sounds, that is the reality. And that is what is causing these small businesses to go out of business at such a large rate because they just can't mm. compete with the big guys that ha- that know instead everything about you and have a lot of sophisticated ways to market to you. So I was doing that for lots of big brands and um, yeah. just looked at SMBs and saw how, how much they were struggling, how they're spending tons of money today on systems that are just so old and antiquated and don't work and wanted to be able to democratize the technology we were building for the big guys, but for the little guy. 
Awesome. Awesome. So you guys uh, went out. Did you bring some of the folks with you? Was it just the two of you for a while as you were getting startups? Tell us about those early days. Yeah, it was just uh, um, uh, just me me and my co-founders in the early days. And then we um, we brought on, you know, all the people we could uh, from from our network, you know, <laughs> just calling, right. calling friends and old acquaintances and, and just generally, you know, begging people to come join us in our in our star scrappy, you know, Quest. garage startup. Awesome. Awesome. And how many employees today after 10 years, 11 years? Old? Uh, we have just over 200 employees today. That's awesome. Great. You've had some venture capital success when I've gathered and at that cash flow positive uh, place yet, or, or still investing in the business as you grow. The, the goal is definitely to, to keep investing in the business. Um, we've, we've raised uh, around 115 million in venture capital today. And we have uh, 65 million consumers, which you know means that we wow. have roughly one fifth of the the U.S. population signed up on our platform at this point. So, so back to the leadership question, you know, what were some of the early challenges? As particularly brought in friends and family, which you know is a blessing and a curse, right? Sometimes it can be great working with folks, you know, that have that type of background. Other times it can be a bit of a challenge. So, tell us a little bit about that. It's definitely, I, I would say mostly it's yeah. a benefit. You know, there, there's obviously a challenge to working with friends and, and people that are close, closer to you. And that is just kind of more awkward to give hard right. feedback right. and things like that. Um, but overall, when, when you're, you know, when you're a startup and you're, 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 you know, you're not getting paid anything <laughs> and you're, you're working out of your living room and all sorts of crazy hours, you, you really need a team of like-minded people who are very devoted to the mission um, who are close uh, and invested yeah. in each other and just kind of, you know, one unit fighting together. So um, it, it was very valuable and, and important for us to have a lot of tight knit relationships. And, and that's something we continue to believe in today. You know, you asked earlier about um, our company yeah. values and they are shared humility, mm. authentic relationships, warrior spirit and joy every day. Nice. And, um, and a lot of, you know, that kind of just ties back to the environment. We How'd you come up with those core values? A lot of prayer. There, there was, it was kind of, it was kind of a, um, I don't, I don't want to overuse the word uh, uh, miraculous, but there, there was this kind of moment where, where we came together as a leadership team. We had originally sort of your trite Silicon value, uh, Valley values, like move fast and break things and take yeah. ownership and whatever. And we realized that those aren't really values per se, or, or, or not the type of um, ones that we felt described. Um, uh, a culture uh, around um, around the traits we're looking for, and so we had people read a, a bunch of different books, you know, like uh, the Chick Fil A story, yeah. Eat More Chicken, or Lead with Love from Southwest Air West Airlines, and so forth. And everyone kind of went away to um, brainstorm a set of values, and and when we came back together, um, people had came back with the, the same four or five values. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so we wordsmithed, smithed it a bit and it, it became the, the four values uh, that we have now. That's awesome. I, I've heard it said, particularly with, with, you know, younger CEOs that sometimes can be a little uncomfortable having your answers questioned rather than your questions answered. Um, have you been in that situation? You know, how has that humility played out as you've continued to grow the business? You know, definitely. But I, I don't know that I, I see it the same way. Mm -hmm. I, I think my observation is quite the opposite that, um, you know, when, when you walk into a situation and you know that you have a lot of things that you don't know, then, and you're, you're consistently hiring 
people who are supposed to be more seasoned and experienced right. uh, in their fields. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to create an environment of uh, debate and dialogue mm. um, and so forth versus my, my observation is, you know, yeah. And, and I see a lot less people in that, in this situation taking like a command and control style. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, that, that sort of command and control style comes more when, when you kind of think, Hey, I know it all. So right. let me just tell everyone what to do. Yeah. Obviously that's a very, very bad thing, but I, I would say, when I, when I look at sort of younger founders, um, I, I don't see them fall into that trap nearly as often. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about how your leadership style has evolved over the years, because obviously you went through that phase with just you and your co-founder. And then you, of course, brought in friends and family. And now you're, you know, obviously having to hire folks from the outside and, and, you know, that may or may not be direct references from where they've gone. You know, have you shifted a bit in, in terms of how you've managed and developed people over time? A lot has changed, mm. uh, hopefully improved, you know, um, as I've learned. I don't know if I have any sort of pithy summary of it, though. You know, I, I feel like leadership is, is so is so nuanced. And, mm-hmm. and for us, we, you know, we're pursuing this model of servant leadership. But what servant leadership looks like in practice, it, it has so many facets to it. And there, there are areas of it. I'm good at and improved at over time and others that I'm terrible at um, and, and trying to work on or even struggling to improve on. And, uh, and, and it's, yeah, very, very multifaceted. So um, I, I, I'm trying to, I don't know if there's any sort of major themes that are worth kind of. What are the ones that you're, what are the ones you're working on? So I think the biggest one, if, if I were to just zoom out and look at, um, my career so far at, at a 10,000 foot level is that especially with a startup, it's really easy to intertwine your identity with the success of the company. Um, meaning to say that when the company is doing good, uh, when doing well, you feel good about yourself. When the company's doing poorly, you feel bad about yourself. You, you watch these situations where, you know, uh, the, the founder of a company that's failed feels like a personal, like a personal failure. And you see, uh, you know, founders of companies that go public and are worth billions of dollars, be kind, you know, get a big head and become, become kind of arrogant assholes. Right. And, uh, and, um, and, and so, and in the day-to-day of sort of the startup roller coaster, it, it's exhausting, you know, if, if in all the up and down, you are personally also going up and down, up and down. And it's also, it's also just practically bad, pragmatically bad. Because when when your emotions are oscillating so much, it's very hard to make solid, long-term, um, focused business decisions. So, I would say one of the biggest the biggest uh, things um, I've been trying to work on over the years is making sure that my sense of identity and self worth is 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 not based in you know the company itself and the company success, you know, but but rather based on what God says of me and. Um, and, and that I define my, I define success the way God defines success and not just like, you know, what TechCrunch says success means. 
<laughs> right, right. And, and, and how, you know, servant leadership, we, we touched on that a little bit. And I know that's an important foundation of, of who Five Stars is trying to be. H- how does that look like day to day? You know, when, when, when do you get challenged on that? Or when do you feel like, gosh, I've got to really do something different to be that servant leader? I feel like that, that question is a bit broad. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think if there's like a specific example well, how does it how does it look like day to day? I mean, is there are there certain things that you do that you know you would feel like, gosh, I'm really you know demonstrating that today, or or you know maybe take the reins back from time to time and and perhaps you know be be a little bit more of that command and control. Do you do you catch yourself in that, or you know do you do you practice certain things that really make it feel like it's a servant leadership culture? Well, you know, I, I don't I don't think servant leadership and command and control are, are even on different ends of the spectrum, you know, I think they're just unrelated mm-hmm. concepts, you know, because the, the concept mm-hmm. of, of servant leadership is, is sort of an inverted pyramid, right? Where my, my team doesn't work for me, I work for them, you know, and I, my motivation, you know, is, is, um, is not just to like pursue my own self-interest, get rich, make my own resume look better. And, you know, while I use these like human resources around me, you know, um, but, right. and, um, but rather the opposite, right? Like I'm trying to pursue a mission. I, I'm trying to make sure our people are invested in and successful. And, and so I think servant leadership is, is really, it stems from like a heart place and condition, you know, like mm. when, when I wake up in the morning, how, how often am I, am I thinking about and worried about our, our merchants and our employees versus about like mm. attaining some goal and making, you know, my, myself look yeah. good in some Quarterly sort of way. Results. And, and there are many, many ways to do that though, right? Like someone could have a more directive style and still be coming from that place versus uh, a much more de- democratic style. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know that it directly relates to the style of leadership so much as it relates to the intent and then coming from there, yeah. there's yeah. obviously a, a lot yeah. of ways that practically manifests. Yeah. Good point. What would you say is most unusual or, or unique about the culture at five stars that, you know, you hear back from the rank and file, so to speak? For us, I would say it, it really just comes down to our values, you know, of, uh, of humility, mm-hmm. authenticity, warrior spirit, and, and joy. Um, we really strive to be a place where the values are, are, are real and deeply integrated and uh, versus just being lip service, um, or conceptual. So, for us, um, we bake our values into the way we hire and, uh, they're on candidate mm-hmm. scorecards. We bake them into performance reviews. And for us, it's, you know, it's someone can't just get away with being a really strong performer. They, they really need to d- behave in a way that is, 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 is humble and authentic and, and so forth. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, related to those concepts, there, there's a lot of subconcepts like, like really never gossiping. If you ever talk about someone um, behind their back, you should talk about them the exact same way as if they were, it was to their face, right? Use the same words, use the same tone yeah. of voice. Yeah. You, you know, um, if uh, you have, if you have a conflict with someone, always give them the direct feedback, you know, work it out. Um, don't just sort of walk away or let something simmer. And there, there's a lot of pieces to this. And so it's, it's in our 360 performance reviews. We, we want to make sure it's, it's, mm-hmm. um, viewed as just as important as someone's work performance uh, we have and we have it shows up in a variety of other ways like you know internal rewards and town hall celebrations and stuff like that 
Um, but you know, I, I think those yeah. four, those four values really um, encapsulate the type of culture we're trying to create. Do you do uh, regular annual performance reviews up and down the organization? Are they more frequent, less frequent? We do twice a year, on, you know, 360 so, reviews. Yeah, awesome. Cool. What, um, what do you look for when you're you know, making bets on the people you invest in and hire? So it, it varies, obviously, by function. Um, but at the mm -hmm. core, you know, we're looking for people who reflect the values, you know, like some, someone who um, is, is humble. And as a result, able to put the team first, able to put treat feedback as a gift, someone who is authentic, you know, and able to uh, not gossip, um, not be political, communicate directly and, and really even express their own diverse set of interests and personalities. And, you know, we, we say, bring it all here, right? Don't be professional, be authentic, just sort of bring your mm -hmm. whole self, someone who has a warrior spirit, right, is really willing, striving to be the best at what they do at whatever their function is willing to fight for the battles that really matter at a company. Um, and, uh, and lastly, so do you look for examples of those things? I mean, you, you ask questions that specifically get at that type of behavior in their previous jobs or how do you, how do you identify that? Cause are, those are all obviously very good core values, but hard perhaps at times to get out in an interview situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely there are behavioral, components and um uh and uh sort of professional components where you're you're looking at work history you're making people do um you know do little projects or answer case studies uh and um mm -hmm. you know and, and obviously you're limited in what you can learn in a process but you you do your best you know over time to learn what a good answer is versus a bad answer and so forth and do you have specific questions you like to ask in terms of, you know, getting at some of those things? I mean, I'm sure you don't interview everyone in the organization anymore. It's at one time you did, but, uh, you know, whether it's a, maybe a level or two down in the organization, you know, what, what would be the kind of questions you'd ask to kind of get at some of those values? So there, there are a number that have been my go-tos. Um, yeah. I almost don't want to share them because then if I share them, then, <laughs> then they lose their effectiveness. <laughs> Who's ever listening to this podcast <laughs> is going to know the questions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's nothing, nothing too special, but I think, you know, every, every one kind of hones their, there's a set of questions that over time you ask over and over and over to hundreds of people, thousands of people, you know, and, and right. as you kind of watch it play out, you, you learn to identify which ones gave a good signal versus a bad signal and so on. Do you have the kind of a, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, flow into the organization where you can, you know, turn more people down than you, than you accept, you get a good, a good uh, pipeline full of, of folks and, and find yourself being more selective, or is it hard to find people that really match those values? A little bit of both. I mean, I mean, cer certainly, yeah. um, I, I think there's a lot of self-selection that happens, you know, some people hear our values and they think, oh man, that's so great. That's, that's just the environment for me. And other people hear them and think, oh, wow, that's kind of fluffy. Like, why? Like, it just sounds like a yeah, bunch of, yeah. you know, soft marshmallowy stuff. Why would I want to work there? And, uh, and so there's definitely, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's sort of a healthy self-selection that happens. Um, but otherwise, I mean, obviously, as, as you know, the Silicon Valley recruiting environment these days is crazy with just the, the amount of, right. the amount of movement um, in between companies and, and how much funding is going into the space and all of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you have a lot of turnover or are you able to retain folks that you, that you really want to keep? Um, I think both, you know, there we, on the one we have a uh, turnover from the perspective that um, stints are short in, val- in the Valley and people jump around between can- uh, companies uh, a lot as common practice. And every one of our employees is getting reached out to, you know, constantly uh, sure. with, with offers. And then on the other hand, we, we have many, many people who have been at the company uh, for, you know, for, for many, many years, you know, some for the, from some for 10 years since the very beginning. Um, so we've got bits of both. So we're, we're going into the second year of the pandemic. Um, has that, has that period been a good time for you? Has this been a, an opportunity for you guys to get deeper with your customers and for the customers themselves to see the value of five stars, or has it been, you know, a harder period given the fact that you maybe haven't had as much personal contact with the customers as you'd like to? It's both. So it's, it's hard from the perspective that our customers are brick and mortar small businesses. You know, they, it, they are the group sure. that were the, was the hardest hit by the pandemic the and hardest, yeah. in an effort yeah. to support right. them. Um, you know, we've, we gave away over a million dollars in, in, in credits to people who are struggling financially. We, we opened up a lot of our wow. product um, suite to extend them for free. Um, there was just key components of our product that they might not be able to afford to pay for, but that we thought would help. Uh, we also spent a ton of time uh, trying to help them navigate like the government programs like PPP if you're, or EIDL, if you're familiar with some right. of those acronyms, because they were so confusing. Sure. And uh, yet, you know, the lifeline for these businesses. So we, we helped hundreds of our businesses get loans and things like that. And um, so all, all of, and, and, and as, you know, being directly impacted ourselves, we had to furlough portions of our own team, sure. you know, like we had sales reps who are used to walking door to door where they, they couldn't do that. And so that's been really hard from that perspective. And um, on the other perspective, yeah. you know, I think during this period, a lot of small businesses realize just how critical being able to interact directly with their customers is even, even more than before where right. they realized, Hey, my best customers haven't been around in a long time and they might not even know <laughs> right. that I'm open now or that I do curbside pickup now, or that I do delivery mm-hmm. or, or whatever else. And, and, uh, and if not through five stars, there was no other way for them to communicate to all those customers. And so we actually saw mm-hmm. record product usage um, throughout this period. And we really continue to, as a lot of small businesses through this are, are more waking up to how important customer relationships are. Um, you know, that, that's obviously been good for the business. Well, Victor, we're just about out of time, but we always ask one last uh, question of all of our CEO guests. And that'd be kind of what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who, you know, maybe has got their eyes on a corner office themselves or like you, you know, wants to be an entrepreneur? I would say, (laughs) I would say that if you have your eye on the corner office, then you're doing it all Mm. wrong. Because I think the people where their goal in life is to be, if your goal becomes how do I climb the ladder and get the corner office? Then it's going to be extremely hard for you to be the type of leader that, especially you know that, especially today now in, in this modern age, is much more expected. Right, mm-hmm. where you are more of a servant leader, you are working for your people, mm-hmm. you have a mission at heart. You know, I think the advice I would give is, um, and, well, and 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 further you know, where, where you've like spent, spent decades climbing the ladder just for the sake of climbing the ladder, you realize you're passionate, you're not passionate about any of it. And, and you're now having like a quarter life crisis or a midlife crisis 
And, and that's happening more than ever before also, right? right? Where it used to be midlife and now you can't even get through a quarter <laughs> or, a third, or a third of your life before melting down and realize, realizing you've taken the wrong path. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I, I can't even count how many of my personal friends were on some sort of high-flying trajectory in some direction and then you catch up with them years later and, and they've completely shifted jobs and industries because they realized that they were only doing it because you know, they were chasing some sort of trophy. Um, and, uh, and on the other hand, I would, so I, I would say that what you should do is instead figure out what you're really passionate about, mm. figure out what, when you're 65 and you're retiring and you're, you're talking to your, your kids and your grandkids, you know, what you want to be able to tell them you accomplished, you know, what mission are you actually passionate about? And then let that drive you. And if, and, and that very well might drive you to the corner office, you know, um, or, and, and at the very least it will drive you, um, somewhere that you, you actually care about such that you're not looking in the mirror years down the road and suddenly completely surprised and upset about where you've ended up. So I, I think that would be my advice. If, if you're, if you're, goal is to be in the corner office um get rid of that goal focus more on <laughs> and, the journey and instead yeah. <laughs> think about what you actually want to create you know what what yeah where what it is that you actually want to accomplish well victor ho co-founder and ceo at five stars thank you so much for sharing your career journey into the corner office thanks for having me brant Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.